Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore and the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm Ann Stickney, one of two lore-focused writers for Blizzard Watch, and I've got both of my wonderful co-hosts with me today. First up, let's start with him because we didn't start with him. We haven't started with him in a while, and that would be Joe Perez. Hey, Joe. How's it going? Well, hi. It's going really well, and I have a present for you two when we're done with our introductions. Uh-oh. A present? Okay. A present. All right. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. First off, we'll get to the other introduction, which would be our other lore-focused writer over at Blizzard Watch, and that would be Matt Rossi. Hey, Rossi. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? I don't know, man. I don't ever have anything to say here. It's like, <laughs> oh, God. I'm so used to asking people what they've been doing that when people introduce me, I'm just, I just freeze up. It's like, oh, God. Welcome to podcast. Ah. Okay. Well, I tell you what. Joe says he has a present. So what's the present, Joe? So for this is coming from at the request of many of our patrons. So thank you guys. Uh, I've been running a Shadowrun game for the last 20 years, and I very rarely include new NPCs into it. And Rossi, you have both become immortalized in my campaign world as characters in this game. And you are the queen of knaves, a half elf, basically leader of a thieves guild that is completely agnostic to any corporations. Oh, my God. And, and Rossi, you are the blind Ronin whose wife is a shaman of Set. Uh, you have also been completely agnostic of all corporations and have wait, wait, made wait. a... I thought this was like a role-playing game. And it is. a description of my life. <laughs> well, you are probably the most bad mother, shut your mouth, uh, Ronin. In, in, you do exist in the wilds of Canada. So... Yeah. For all of you guys, you get to make a choice of what your character names are or what you want them to be. Send them to me in an email, and uh, we're going to be doing a full workup for one of the modules that I'm doing. So congratulations, you guys. Wow. (laughs) Okay, that's totally rad. (laughs) A 20-year flipping game? Oh, my gosh. And it's a living game world, too. So, like, it it has not stayed the same. It started in the year in game world, 2055. It's now 2075. So it's it's an ongoing thing. Wow. It's going to be weird when we actually get to 2055 and you have to, like, do stuff. Or I'm completely right, one or the other. Like, it, it, it can only go two ways. Well, I don't think <laughs> I can actually become a half-elf, but, you know. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Oh, my gosh. That's cool. Thank you, Joe. You're very welcome. It is very cool. Okay, so um, coolness aside here, although I tell you, I'm like really stoked now. Okay, but we have to move (laughs) on and actually get to the show. (laughs) Last time we talked, we were going on about the Lich King, and it was based off of a couple of questions that we'd gotten via email. We had some other email questions that we didn't actually get a chance to get to because, hello, we were really involved in that whole Lich King thing. So um, I decided to go ahead and just bring those back so that we could go ahead and address them and talk a little more. There's only three of them. Um, I'm hoping that we can get to all three in an hour. Who knows with us? Uh, so the first one here is from Don Chaser, who's a 110 human paladin on the Darkspear server and says, Hello, my favorite lore crew. This isn't necessarily about 7.2, but since Legion is so hefty on class fantasy, I had a simple question about paladins. Why is it that Forsaken, who have such strong will that they broke free of the Lich King's domination, can't be paladins? One undead paladin does exist in the lore, this is the only one I know of currently, named Sir Zeliac. From Walpedia, he was a paladin in life, so strong in his faith that even in undeath, the power of the light still heeded at his call, smiting his foes in battle. He's not a huge character in the lore, but it does show that undead paladins are possible. Seeing as how our characters are the mightiest champions on Azeroth currently, it seems like there could be a few more undead paladins on Azeroth. I, for one, would love to be an undead paladin as the Forsaken are my favorite race. Thoughts? And I'm going to add a caveat to that because I I feel like this kind of goes into the whole idea of races being classes that they aren't typically associated with. And I mean, we'll go ahead and talk about undead paladins here because that's what the question was regarding. But we might want to, like, talk about other races and why they may or may not work for certain classes. Well, I can say up front there's a another undead paladin now is there nearest Moonfang is a night elf ghost who is a paladin okay he's, he's a paladin class order hall follower but well, he's like undead, a, but that's he's not, not forsaken yeah he's not he's he's like a ghost he's not yeah. he's not a forsaken but he is undead he wasn't yeah, touched by the undead. scourge at all 
But we should also point out that not all Forsaken broke free of the Lich King because they were super strong-willed. Um, many of them only broke free of the Lich King because the Lich King couldn't hold them because he was busy getting destroyed. Um, a lot of the, the the original break that created the Forsaken wasn't an act of mass will by the people. They were under the Lich King's influence, and they could not escape. What happened was the Lich King got attacked by, um, of all people, Illidan, who was trying to destroy Ice Crown Citadel. I mean, back then it was just Ice Crown Glacier. But he's trying to destroy it with the ISR Garrus. It was causing earthquakes, and Arthas had to run to get up there in time to reach the Lich King, who had weakened himself on purpose. When the Lich King shoved Frostmourne out of the Frozen Throne, he rent he rent it. He made a hole in the Frozen Throne, which meant that the magic that was supposed to keep him, you know, in check, but also empowered, was leaking out into the world. And keep in mind uh, that all of this was like a gigantic chess game. The whole reason that Illidan was attacking the Frozen Throne was because the Legion had asked him to do so because he was kind of beholden to the Legion, the Burning Legion at the time. Yeah. And mm -hmm. yeah. So you have this whole power play going on between Lich King and Burning Legion. And pretty much ever since the Lich King was created, he was trying to... Well, he wasn't happy. I mean, Ner'zhul, let, let's just... We should just put it down as that. Ner'zhul was not happy about being made the Lich King. This was not a position that he asked for. This was a punishment. And he spent uh, I... pretty much the entirety of his time as the Lich King figuring out a way to get out of it. <laughs> yeah, it was very much not a job interview. It wasn't like, you know, uh -oh. so why do you want to be the Lich King? It was more like, so I'm going to rip you into tiny, tiny little pieces over and over again, but I won't let you die, and then I'm going to stick you in this magic armor. And now it, you're it going was... to serve me like you're supposed to. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was very much kill Jaden being loath to throw away a possibly useful tool, and and Ner'zhul not being down with the program. Where were we uh, going with that? Oh, the just Forsaken. The, the, whole point, yeah. the important point is that the Forsaken are not generally speaking, super strong-willed and did, didn't throw the Lich King's bounds off. There are some that did, but the vast majority, nope, they'd still be working for the Lich King right now if the Lich King hadn't lost the ability to project his will that far. And they almost um, kind of gathered to Sylvanas because Sylvanas was the only one that was offering... Like, these people essentially woke up into this world where they were these horrific undead monstrosities that could not die totally cognizant of everything that they had done when they were mindless scourge so anyone that yeah. they might have killed they were all of these people were suffering and they were also under the weight of the fact that they were undead they could not go home again there was no future for them they were just there so sylvanas kind of gathered them all together yeah and in terms of using the light and becoming a paladin and if you're a forsaken i'm not going to say that your particular character couldn't be that strong-willed but let me put it this way, Leonid Bartholomew, who is one of the most strong-willed and independent Forsaken in existence, he's a, a warrior who serves the Argent Dawn, not the, and then the Argent Crusade when they changed to that. He's fought the, the Scourge. He's almost revered by the people who work with him as an example of like almost a like paragon of, of piety and righteousness. He is not a paladin. He is just a warrior. Joe, do you want to jump in on this? Well, see, this is a question that I've actually asked a lot myself, <laughs> uh, mostly because when I look at it and, and I keep going back to forsaken priests, they can still wield the light. It hurts them. It causes them incredible pain, but they can still do it. And that always made me wonder if that's the case and all the paladins that want to go fight and we can always assume we're were resurrected or came back as forsaken or part, as even just part of the scourge and woke up. How come we don't see more of them? Yeah, well, it would hurt. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it would hurt them just as much as like the priests do, you know, when they when they wield that light. But if their convictions are that strong in life that the light answers them as paladins, I don't maybe see the reason why they couldn't be more prevalent. Here's an interesting point, though, and it's something I noticed when I was doing the Death Knight um, campaign. Number one, a lot of the people that got raised as Death Knights seem to have been paladins before. Like you get a lot of like, for instance, when you're like you're a human and you go in and they are like there's several Argent Crusade dudes in that room. The ones that are like, you know, no, you were a hero. Like several of them are Argent Crusade. You were. So those guys were paladins, most likely. But secondly, if you if you go and do the, the Death Knight um, campaign, the, the quests for the, the two swords, the Blades of the Fallen Prince, you go through ICC and you see the Shards of Frostmourne and just about everybody that you run into is a paladin. Paladins don't seem to have just fallen to the scourge and get up as, as zombies again. 
Paladins got special treatment. Arthas sought them out and killed them himself with that sword. Because they show, they're like, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy, but he's like real famous. Gavinrad. Gavinrad the Dyer is in there. You fight Gavinrad directly when you're going into the Ice Crown Citadel to get the pieces of, of Frostmourne to make the swords. It doesn't feel like pa- Paladins are that numerous. And the ones that were fighting him, they didn't end up as shambling corpses. They went down to Arthas. He gave them a personal death. See, and, and I think that may be part of what I'm, I'm having trouble reconciling, because I can, I can understand that. But the Paladins feel more like a, I don't want to say a militaristic order, but they feel more, they, they, I mean, that's the only thing I can really think of. They feel like a far-reaching mil- militaristic order, at least as far as the current state of the game and lore goes. Now, that current may state, not... Yeah, I, absolutely, yeah. I agree. And, that, and, and in that meantime, I don't know what else has happened. We know that new Forsaken wake up. We knew that, you know, whether from whatever Solanus is doing or there's other ones out there, um, there's no way that Arthas could have possibly gone after every single one of them. But we know that they've died other at other points in time, and especially during the... the the war with the scourge. I mean, See, I don't know. I don't know if that's actually true. See, because the thing is, is we're talking, we're looking at paladins as they exist right now in World of Warcraft. Sure. And part of the problem with that is that paladins in World of Warcraft right now have been adapted to serve the game, just like priests have. Um, they've changed priests quite a bit to make them work in World of Warcraft as opposed to the Warcraft RTS. Um, but in the RTS, paladin were a hero unit. Like your average guy, even like powerful soldiers were just knights. Like paladins were special. They didn't have a lot of them. If you, you could like list them all by name. Um, the, it was to the point where when Arthas became a paladin, pretty much every famous paladin showed up for his ceremony. There were like 20 of them. So it's, it's one of those weird things where we're talking about something that has been adapted to a completely different game world. And I don't know. I mean, lore-wise, how many paladins were there? I can't, I can't answer that question. In terms of the Forsaken getting to be paladins, I'm not opposed to it. Like I said before, I can't, I'm not going to tell you your character couldn't be somebody who had strong enough will in the light. I just don't know how many there would be. It just is one of those situations where the average Forsaken isn't some paragon of will. They're just a, guy, a person who suffered and died and then were raised against their will to be... They're victims. And that's perfectly acceptable. It's just... I, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's okay. hard to, you know. I'm going to interject here with a counterpoint because <laughs> I, I do understand, like, from a gameplay standpoint, that an undead paladin would probably be, like, a pretty cool thing to have. At the same time, this is a lore podcast, so I feel like I should point out the lore and how the lore works with paladins in particular. I think that paladins and priests are kind of cut from the same cloth, but they're a little bit different. Um, Paladins in particular, the way that paladins do what they do is they have this really strong affinity for and faith in the light, and the light answers them because of that faith and because of that conviction. The light in and of itself is kind of like the polar opposite of necromantic anything, and undeath in particular is something that is probably kind of abhorrent to it. Like, they don't mesh together, they repel each other, Mm. you know what I mean? So that's why when we talk about forsaken priests and they're practicing the light, what that light actually does to them is it burns them and then cauterizes it. Undead priests, forsaken priests, are people you really don't want to mess with because they have an incredible amount Mm -hmm. of will to be able to pull off what they're doing. And a paladin would have to do the same thing. Not only would they have to have that that strength and faith and that strength and will, the light would have to recognize that and answer that call. In the case of Zeliac, Zeliac's faith was so strong that the light said, okay, we're going to go ahead and answer that call. I don't know if a random player, you know, not even... Understandably, yes, they are champions of Azeroth and all this other stuff, but it's it's not so much the champion of Azeroth part as it is the faith aspect of it. Well, and you hit on something that I was going to bring up too, and, and here's the thing, right? Like, how were paladins originally born? They were a mix between warriors and priests. Basically, uh, Alonzo's Fowl, he said, we need 
the priests are dying on the battlefield. We need to come up with a solution. So what he did mm-hmm. was he took some priests and he took some warriors and he trained the warriors to be priests and he cha- trained the priests to be warriors and they came up with this kind of mix that was the paladin. It was this battle-hardened dude or lady who was also capable of wielding the light. And the light and answered it and gave it, them strength beyond what you'd usually see with a normal priest. You know, they were very sure. capable of handling themselves on the battlefield. That was the whole point. But I guess that's that, actually... I, I'm sorry, Joe. I, I was just going to say, but I guess that's kind of my, my curious point, though. If you're an undead priest and you're you're in that perfect storm of the exact same thing that bore paladins, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're a race that can't propagate itself. You are constantly injuring yourself to fix other things, uh, whether they're other forsaken or whether they're members of the horde that you are fighting shoulder to shoulder with. I get with, where you're going. and It almost seems like a logical thing, right? Yeah, the potential exists for forsaken priests because they are already, they have that strength of will. The The potential exists for maybe some of those order to kind become, of yeah. come forward, but they would have to want to cleave to the light. Like they would really have to want to, they would have to drop all animosity, all thirst for vengeance, all of that stuff that consumes a forsaken and give themselves to the light completely. Well, plus, I mean, that's, that's a good point. And also there's the other possibility of who's going to teach them to be paladins. Right. Because (laughs) right now, if a new forsaken, let's assume for a moment, no paladins that, that died and were raised survived as paladins. They lost their minds completely. They had to rebuild themselves. So there's nobody there. There's, there's no. Zeliac's really the only one. Yeah. So and he's not, he's currently in Nax or dead. So it's like we, we have night elves. There's one night elf paladin, right? And one ghost who kind of sort of qualifies. That night elf paladin had other paladins that she went to and said, okay, I've been a priest my whole life. I'm very strong in my faith in the light, but I feel like my education is incomplete. Let me join you and learn your ways. She had those people to go ask. And Who realistically, the have though, to go ask? realistically, it makes sense for a night elf because, again, if you have that strength, that faith, and you aren't a walking corpse, you know, that ant- antithesis, whatever you want, the antithesis of, of everything that the light is, then the light would be okay with answering you. So I could see that. I could see that happening. And again, well, I'm not saying that, oh, this is a terrible idea or anything like that. I'm just saying that the lore as it stands, as it's established, there are several mechanics in place here that would make a Forsaken Paladin a very difficult thing to accomplish. Like, they'd have to they'd have to write it really carefully if they stuck it in there. Sure. Yeah, and, I, and I think they could, though. Yeah, the well, potential's could, there. I mean, it. the potential for anything is there. I'd also think like it'd be interesting to see like the concept of an undead paladin re- requires. I, I just imagining the first time a Forsaken decided I want to do this, he then need to go find someone to teach him. He isn't going to get it from anybody in the alliance. That's sure, just but a given. You but, have so two. Uh, you have no, two no, really I know. The Argent Dawn, though. The Argent Dawn might, but then again, you know, as you pointed out, it's real hard because he'd have to basically give up. Oh, so all that stuff where I basically revere Sylvanas as like almost a god and do whatever she wants, I have to give that up. And think for myself all the time. All right. It's okay. it's that strength of will that's kind of like, are they powerful enough to do that? And also, if they stepped away and chose that paladin path, would they still be forsaken? Because I don't think Sylvanas would be terribly happy about that situation. I don't no, think I, she would look at this as like a bright new dawn for the forsaken. I think she would look at this as an abomination. They're turning away from what they are. It um, really would matter too. Plus, I mean... Let's be honest. The only people in the horde who have the light and who would be likely to be willing to train them are Torin. Yeah. Because the Blood Elves would not do it. The Blood Elves are not comfortable enough with the Forsaken or Sylvanas. They're scared of her, and they would not give, do anything to make her stronger. Even if the, the, the Paladin's like, no, I absolutely won't make her stronger. I'm certainly not going to go back to, to the Undercity and t- teach an entire cadre of Paladins. They would be like, oh, sure you're not. So it, there's, again, I don't think this is necessarily undoable. I just think what it would be interesting to watch how they would do it, in my opinion. The other one I want to jump to, because it's the other one that people bring up like all the freaking time, although it has kind of died down a little bit, but there are still people out there who want to see this happen. Blood Elf Druids, what do you guys think? <laughs> I knew you were going to bring up Blood Elf Yeah, Yeah, I'm going to put that out there and let you guys talk, because I have my own thoughts on the matter, and I will jump in at the end. You guys go. Joe, go ahead and go first. Go first, Joe. I mean, considering what Blood Elves were born from, I mean, 
yeah, it's theoretically possible, but I don't see it as very likely at all. I could see maybe having an outlier NPC, you know, maybe here and there that's considered a blood elf. But I mean, no, I, I don't really see that happening. I don't see that. I can't see how they would do that. That would make much sense. I can see how they can have a blood elf who does stuff with plants just fine. But that's why the Botanomancer... I was just going to say that, yeah. I mean, we have that. That's our team base, though. We saw that. We saw that all the way back in BC with the guy who was. uh, Is it the Architraz or the Mechanar? No, it's neither Uh, one. It's uh, the other one. Okay, Botanica. Botanica. So you got that guy in the in the Botanica who's doing experiments. I can never remember the name, but you know the character. And the 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 the, um, Nightborn actually have very similar mage plant people like people who do stuff with plants but with with arcane magic that i can see pretty easily because druidism even the even like we had that argument a while back about are the guys who existed before malfurion do they count as druids for the moment let's assume they do any form of druidism we've ever seen doesn't impose its will on nature it listens to nature and tries to to bring about balance for it like what would be the best balance here that's the thing that that druids and proto druids try and do. They try and create balance. The blood elves and even before then the high elves don't give a fig about balance. If you look at what they did in Silvermoon, if they did in 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 you know Quel'Thalas, they changed it to suit them. They yeah, they shaped nature. There's a reason Eversong woods are eternally golden and sunny and everything. And it's not natural. None of it is natural. It was all very artificial and created with arcane magic. Because that's what they do. They shape the world to see as they see fit. Yeah, and so you can certainly have a, a blood elf who's into plant growth and into, like, who loves gardening and loves tending and loves these certain animals. And you know, he might superficially resemble a druid because he lives out in the woods and has cats following around or whatever. But in the end, he's still making nature be what he wants it to be, or she. Whereas with a, an actual druid, they would like they would sit and watch what nature had to show them. They're not going to tell nature what to be. Whereas blood elves would, and, I, and high elves before them. This isn't just a blood elf thing. The high elves are just as bad. You're not going to get a high elf who like you know takes nature as it comes. They shaped nature. They made nature be what they wanted. There's a reason there's cats all over that forest that, you know, don't belong there. They Druidic, put them there. The nature of Druidism in World of Warcraft is to preserve the balance of nature. Like that's what you're doing when you're a druid. You're preserving the balance of nature. You're protecting it. You're you're keeping it safe. Um and yeah, the botanist thing, I mean people bring up the botanist guy all the time because he's like there's your example. Look, point at that guy. The thing is, that guy didn't become a druid because of the mm-hmm. ancients. He didn't become a druid because of study. He didn't become a druid because he was particularly dedicated to preserving that natural balance. He became a druid because he used magic to make himself a druid. Yeah, and I would argue that he's more a mage than a druid anyway. He like, is. That's just, that's just the, the, the sad truth of it. Because he used the and, arcane uh, even, to do it. And, and it's the same thing with, we, we, you couldn't remember his name, but it's botanist Freywin. Yeah, Freywin. That's who I'm talking about, is Freywin. But the thing is, as far as druids go, could you make a blood elf druid? Yeah, but would that druid be welcome anywhere in the Emerald Dream? Absolutely not. Would it be able to shapeshift? Like, would they be able to learn how to shapeshift from the ancients? No, the ancients would probably be pretty ticked that they even existed. Um, What blood elves do... I really, I actually, I like that example about like the forests and the trees and how everything was just shaped. Like they shape everything to suit them. They are very much about learning and study and everything. But you also have to look at the origins of the blood elves and then the high elves before them. These guys were kicked out of Calderia society because they didn't want to adhere to that whole natural study fall to rot. They wanted to practice arcane magic. That's what they were down with. That's what they wanted to do. That's all they wanted to do. And when they tried to do it, they got kicked out. And they got sent across the sea. And, of course, you know, what did they want to do? They wanted to establish a place where they could practice arcane magic, that thing that they wanted to do. So the entirety of that whole formation of that society was built around the study of arcane magic. They didn't care about the natural side of things. They pretty much shunned that when they were when they were exiled. Um, 
Very so much I like the curated. Yeah, they very much like the curated, controlled nature. Like yeah. the Leprechaun Woods are beautiful. Oh, absolutely, they're absolutely beautiful. But if you want to know what they actually would look like, they're built to exacting specifications. <laughs> yeah, if, if you wanted to know what they would have looked like without them, go to Zulamon, and you notice. Even when Zulaman's away, you're, you go to Zulaman, you're away enough from the, the ghost land part of it. You're not in the plague area anymore, and the woods look completely different. They're not the same. It's and a they're different, not plagued. Yeah. It's just, this is what it would have looked like for this all the This is what they, they were, were supposed to look like. <laughs> yeah. But, the, but the, that wasn't good enough for, for the High Elves. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm beating on Blood Elves here. This goes back to the High Elves. This goes back to the split. This goes back to the way elf culture was before the Sundering. If you want to look at the Highborn or, or as Shara's court or the way Calderai was, were during the Calder Empire, this is what it was. Go look at Suramar. Yeah. You know, Suramar is very artificial. They, there's like a park in Suramar where it's like, you know, it's a, it's a curiosity that they have animals in it. And, they, and it's very much, let's gawk at it. It's not, let's live by oh, these let's precepts. look at it. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that dinosaur. Oh God, it's broke free. But, you know. <laughs> and again, you know, I, I don't, I don't mean to imply that this sort of thing is a thing that could never happen. Because I mean, it could. Lore is kind of this really fluid thing as far as World of Warcraft is concerned. I mean, and they can write anything that they want to. It's just within the constraints of established lore, it's very difficult to picture them being able to successfully pull that off. Could I mean, it happen? They off- sure. But they pulled off Goblin Shaman, and that was something off, I still don't like. Yeah, they pulled off Goblin Shaman, and that was kind of a stretch. They pulled off Goblin Priests, and that was kind of a stretch, too, because it's like, well, why is the light even talking to you, buddy? You know, so there's like, it's it's difficult to establish, but it could be established. And I guess that's the interesting thing about lore in general, particularly with a game that's evolving the way that World of Warcraft is. It's not, it's not nothing in lore is really finalized finalized everything is kind of mutable everything can kind of be shifted around shifted around and worked around it's just that they have set a few very hard lines here and there and for some of these race class combinations it's really hard to look past that hard line that they established now if they wanted to soften that line or just remove it entirely okay cool more power to them i'd like to see a forsaken paladin i think that they'd look pretty cool but I'm also, like, of the opinion, as somebody who knows lore pretty well, that a Forsaken Paladin, like, the first time they lay down a Consecrate, they're just going to blow up. <laughs> ow, my feet! Like, oh, like God. a firework. Oh, ow, you you oh, know what ow. happens when you kill an ethereal where there's that flare of light and then nothing? That's what would happen. <laughs> I mean, heck, it'd be a great way to clear out some space, though. I'm just absolutely. Saying. Absolutely. But, yeah, it's it's just kind of hard to think about. Um so yeah, I mean, your question there was just thoughts. So I guess that's our thoughts on that, Don Chaser. Thank you for the question, though, because that it's one of those things that I'm like, we should probably talk about that, because why not? Okay, our next email says, Hey, Lore Watch, Shadow Priest Aranthus from Moonguard here, and I have had something that occurred to me while listening to the Whispers of Zolototh. While the lore of the weapon implies that it was made from the body part of an old god based on the things it says, it definitely doesn't seem to be a part of any of the named ones we know. In fact, it speaks of most of the other old gods with contempt. For example, to see Yogg-Saron's nightmare in full bloom fills me with jealousy and some pride. We may face some of my brethren in this conflict, a prospect that delights me. Their power will be mine. They will pay for what was done to me long ago. There, a spy for Nazoth. We should kill it. For this idiotic pustule of Nazoth to have lived for so long, it does little to refute my opinion of this world's new owners. So this made me wonder, if the blade is made from the body part of an old god, or even just a piece of an old god's creation like a like a Cathraxi, then which one? Could it imply the existence of a fifth old god, or is it made from one not here on Azeroth? Thanks for your time. Always enjoy the show. I feel like there's an obvious I, answer here. I, I went and looked it up anyway, just in case. Mm-hmm. And uh, according to the two, three sites I looked at, the, implica- the, the implication is that it is Yisraj. Yeah, and that makes Yashraj, the most sense, yeah, right? It's because... like a chunk of him yeah and we know that he ceased to exist through the direct actions of the titans which spawned the shah i mean his body had something had to happen with that the pieces of his body the contempt kind of makes sense though because yasharaj the whole reason they went after yasharaj first was because he or it 
I don't know. Do they have gender designations? I, I think it it's probably appropriate. Here. It okay. So Yasharaj was the most powerful of the old gods on Azeroth, um, and kind of like was the head of the Black Empire, as it were. That's why they went after it first because they you know strike at the head of the serpent, as it were. Um, so it doesn't really surprise me that Yasharaj would be kind of doing yeah, the yeah. other old because they're below him or it they're below it and yet they survived and yet they survived where he it he it <laughs> they survived where yashiraj did not yeah i don't i mean it's weird because yashiraj is one of those things where where it's dead and yet that hasn't stopped it in any way from being a gigantic pain for like millennia like we its heart continued on by itself its heart like destroyed nearly destroyed doomed and then you know ultimately kind of saved Pandaria and then we destroyed it. So uh, it's just one of those things. Uh, being dead does not seem to have given Yashiraj as much trouble as one way to hope. Well, I mean, and we don't understand again, gold gods are a thing that we generally don't understand as a whole. It's, it's a yeah. whole, I mean, we barely understand anything about the Legion at this point too. Like we talk about it. We don't, we, we have an idea of how demons work. Maybe, Kind of, sort of. We don't know how demons are made, necessarily. I mean, we know about the genesis of the Burning Legion, so but, we've got yeah. more on that than we do the old gods. The old exactly. gods are just like, oh, oh, the, the Void kind of... The, the Void spat these things out into the universe to corrupt, but as to their actual physiology, how they live, how they die, if they're even really technically classified as alive, we don't know. Mm-hmm. One thing we do know is that Yashiraj was involved in the, uh, the, the whole trolls in Gurubashi rising up. Yeah. Like there's, there's, and, and that's what, and in fact, how they get it even like when your, your priest gets you, you gets this dagger that's involved in it. So you want to go over that a little bit? Cause not everyone may be familiar with that. I haven't really played it either. I'm literally just reading something, but um, what we do know is that there's a troll named Zondo, who's a Gurubashi witch doctor that got basically his, his enemies overthrew him. Cause you know how, troll witch doctors are they're not like nice people they they constantly plot scheme against each other we, we've we've run troll society yeah. in general pretty much we've we've run zulgurub we know how it goes um but when he he got his hands on the dagger um zalatath we don't know from where it came beyond that point like we don't know like was it just in the ground that he picked it out or did it find its way to him we don't know but it drove him insane like it it straight up made him crazy uh and the, the reason that he wasn't supposed to he basically told him you should go to this mountain and he's like okay i'll go to the mountain and they were forbidden from the mountain they weren't supposed to go there but he went there and that's where he found a chathroxy named uh one of the two original chathroxy that were sent after tear one of them tear killed that one was was uh the one zakajaz i can't pronounce his name it's zakajaz zakajaz whatever that one if you did the warrior or priest quests that one was the corpse in the in the tomb of tear you that one that's the one tier killed the other tier mauled like he he messed it up good they killed him but he killed one of them and the other one he hurt real bad it stumbled away and literally walked across the entirety of the continent it, it went from all the way up there uh turn out exactly in lordaeron you know it felt all all the way from where what is now lordaeron all the way down to basically the mountains around zulgrub and collapsed and then got buried uh the trolls were like don't go there but he was like, eh, well, this, this evil dagger I found seems to think it's a really good idea. So I'm going to go over there. And he dug it up. He made blood offerings to it and reawakened it. And uh, when he did this, he plunged the uh, Zalatath into the thing's body, which awakened it. And it rose once more and basically consumed this guy and his whole tribe. But uh, the, the the creature that he woke, the Chithraxi, I, I think its name is Kithix. I can't. It's Kithix, yeah. I can't pronounce their names, but it, it woke up the Akir and basically started sending the Akir forth to, to scavenge this, you know, the entire surface of Azeroth to look for more power for Zalatath. And the the trolls fought the Akir. This is the start of the Akir War. So keep in mind, this was before Night Elves existed. existed. Yeah, this is this is going back like you know maybe 15 20,000 years this is when this happened the troll wars with the akir is because of this moment the dagger did that so that's how bad this dagger is it caused a global conflict uh between trolls and akir 
And then, well after the Black Empire. And yeah, Ooh. Zando was not, he was not the brightest of trolls. He, he kind of figured, he thought that Kithix was a Loa, like an undiscovered Loa that was apparently it was so powerful that all the other spirits were afraid of it, which is why nobody had heard of it before. So he was all excited. He's like, yeah, I'm going to make this thing come back again. And it's going to be the most powerful Loa and make me super powerful. Basically, witch doctors are, yeah, there's something else. All right. Um, but yeah, as far as Zalatath goes, it's it's kind of the assumption that that is a part of Yasharaj. Um, I well, find I Zalatath's whispers particularly fascinating. Oh, hold on, real quick. Just did yeah. you guys remember that when going back to Mr. Pandaria, what uh, Hellscreen created, what it was called, Zalato, the desecrated image of Gorhal. Oh yeah, I got that thing in the bank. Yeah. Yeah. It's yep. the same naming scheme as the dagger, and it was manifested from the power of Yasharaz flowing through Hellscream. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that that weapon will also chat with it, you. It whispers to you, oh, yeah. Oh, I have it. Yeah, it does. It absolutely talks to you all the time. It's got it's some like, really cool ones there, too. Also, to be pointed out, another wielder of this dagger, um, Sorcerer Thane Thorasan's wife, Modgood. She had that and thing in her And she was hand. not quite all there, either. She had that thing in her hands when she basically got killed by Khadra's Worldhammer and her death caused the cursing of Grimbatal. Uh, Erudax, the Duke of Below, who is a Chetraxi, is in the basement of, of Grimbatal because Zalatath was there once. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Zalatath, you, you just don't want to mess with old god weapons. Well, you don't want to mess with... The, the difference between the one that Garrosh Hellscream had and this one is that this one is purported to be an actual piece of an old god. Like yeah, like his claw or something, right? It's his claw right? or something like that. The, Garrosh's weapon was an actual weapon. He had just kind of infused it with the old god. It kind of infused itself through him um, and became something other. So there is a difference between the two. I Zalatath is just really fascinating. Everything about Zalatath is really fascinating because a lot of these major events in history, you know, like these seeds of corruptions and things like that that have kind of spread throughout Azeroth were were part of... It was like it was Zalatath's doing, you know? Yeah, and so it's also even though about- Yasharaj was dead, he was still... It was still able to influence all of this stuff. It should be pointed out, too, that both uh, Zakajaz and... Kithix were um, Yog Saron's servants, and Zalatath devours them. Like both of them end up inside it. Yeah. So when it says that 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 quote that that we read um, about how you know their power will be mine, they will pay for what was done to me long ago. That seems an awful lot like yes, Yashraj is dead, but as long as this daggers around there doing stuff, thing might come back. And it sounds like it's even going to drain the power from other old gods to do it. I mean, oh, yeah. it makes sense, right? is mad. I mean, yeah. it was the most powerful old god. It was the it one was that the oversaw everything and it had to die. Its corporeal form was kind of ripped from Azra. I mean, it was torn to shreds, essentially, but like pieces of it still litter. Like the Shah is kind of like its consciousness just kind of tainted Pandaria. You know, they're, they're despite the fact that it was killed theoretically it did not die and it still lingers on and that's why the titans were like yeah we can't kill old gods and that's kind of where that whole perception of you can't kill an old god comes from because you could destroy it right you can destroy it you can tear it apart you could do whatever you can even rip it try and rip it from azroth if you want to but that consciousness is always still going to be there so yeah um i don't think that there's a fifth old god obviously uh it's been pretty well established that Yasharaj, that that's the old god. There are other old gods out there in the universe because the Void didn't just spit out those four. Those were just the four that coalesced on Azeroth. And we know that there was one, at least one planet completely consumed by the Void. Yeah. So, I mean, theoretically, that had to do something with old gods, you know, being spit onto it. I'm never going to stop loving, uh, to actually, I know it is the Architraz this time, the last fight in the Architraz. Uh, just for when Harbinger Skyrus shows up, and like that's the first thing he says as we span the universe as countless as the stars. Yeah, you know the, the old gods are everywhere. The, the God, it, it's like it's not just the Legion wandering around destroying worlds. Um, it, it, the Legion may be doing that, but the old gods have taken out plenty of them, plenty of them. 
Because it, like any planet they end up on, they infest. That's what they do. Well, I mean, and the question, though, is the difference between the two. Like, we don't know what the old gods do with the uh, the planet once they have it. Like, if that planet could still exist, and that planet could have something else going on with it. I mean, we know what happened somewhat with the Black Empire here in Azeroth. Imagine a, a world that's been completely untouched for millennia, that, that the old gods have had no opposition, what that planet must look like, what creatures must be born there, or what power base or what anchor that provides for the rest of the Void. There, there's some crazy possibilities there. And keep in mind that these these seeds, I guess you could call them seeds, these old god seeds that are being spat out by the void, they do have a purpose. They aren't just being thrown out there willy-nilly. Their purpose is almost the same purpose that the Titans had. It's to find world souls. They want to find the world soul. They want to corrupt the world soul, and they want to create a dark Titan. Now, what they want that dark Titan to do, I guess, you know, bring about the end of everything? I don't know. But technically speaking, they've already got Sargeras kind of doing that thing for them. And I think that's why in this whole cosmic battle, as far as that goes on, you know, you have Sargeras who is working very hard to end the universe to give the Void so that there's nothing left for the Void to devour. But meanwhile, the Void, yeah, it's not doing anything to stop Sargeras. It's like, yeah, go ahead. Attack things. Burn well, down planets. That's great. Go ahead. <laughs> Even on Azeroth, the whole nightmare thing that was going mm-hmm. on, that was very much an old god thing. Were they trying to do anything against the Legion? No. No, they didn't care. I mean, if the world ends one way or another, it's all good as far as they're concerned. Once once all of these pesky heroes are out of the way, they can go ahead and continue infesting the world and, you know... Unless, unless we're part of the old god's scheme to get take care of the legion they don't fear the legion no. but maybe maybe destruction of the universe isn't their goal maybe reclamation of the universe is and i mean if that planets planets are all destroyed maybe that doesn't suit their needs maybe we're accidentally doing their bidding by fighting back the legion who knows it's a good question all right um our last email here this one's interesting and it's talking about um the curse of flesh which is like a favorite topic of mine anyway <laughs> <laughs> and since we're talking about all this old god stuff, it seemed only appropriate to include it. So this one is from Zam, who says, Dear Watchers, in Chronicle Volume 2, it talks about Grand on Draenor, who is essentially the first titan forged of Draenor. And it explains how Grand's descendants would eventually turn from stone to flesh. And there's a quote here. When Batan had exploded, its body had released countless spores teeming with the spirit of life. These spores drifted back to the world's surface and warped whatever they touched. They clung to the hides of the Magneron and weakened their bodies. Some of the Magneron devolved into half-flesh, half-stone giants called Gron. Basically, Draenor had its own quote-unquote curse of flesh that occurred naturally through exposure to the spirit of life on Draenor. In Chronicle Volume 1, there's this passage. The Forge of Wills also served another purpose. It could draw on the life essence of Azeroth itself, giving shape and sentience to create creatures of living stone and metal. Not only giants, but other types of Titan Forge as well. Chronicle Volume 1 also makes it clear that only the Titan Forge born from the Forge of Wills suffered from the Curse of Flesh. Which makes me wonder if the Titan Forge would have devolved anyway without Yog Saron's influence, and he merely accelerated that process. Interested to hear your thoughts, Zam. One thing that should be pointed out before we get into a real big discussion of this... Go ahead. ...is the Curse of Flesh is reverse-engineerable. Both Deathwing and the Mogu know how to reverse it. Yep. Yep. You guys, I want to let you guys go, because I have a lot to say on this one, but you guys... I, I talk a lot, and sometimes I interrupt people, so I want to shut up and let you guys go. <laughs> Joe, go ahead. This is something that I think is kind of interesting from my point of view as somebody who's played Shaman forever, because I believe that... I, the curse of flesh may have naturally occurred at some point because one of the, the shamanistic tenets is this whole cycle of life thing, right? Same. I, I believe druids have a similar belief structure and as far as maintaining balance, but you know, your spirit mu- does its time and then passes on and becomes one of this big entity, you know, and you can still influence and talk, but it's like you, you come back to the whole, so to speak. And this is something that has been repeated and, and talked about in, shamanistic stuff forever so i'm wondering if because it revolves around spirit which is a very shamanistic element and and i will call it an element because it is of that the planet we reside on that it may have eventually occurred i think that it was just accelerated beyond what it normally would have occurred because everything according to 
those beliefs has to live and die in order to be born again. Type it thing. is technically an air element because there's there's five yeah. there's you know water, earth, air, fire, and then life is or well spirit, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Spirit. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you want me to jump in, or did you have more to say? I'm sorry. No, go for it. Okay. Um, there's a big difference in the evolution of Draenor versus the evolution of Azeroth, and it all has to do with the world soul that's sitting in Azeroth right now. On Draenor, it, that planet was just riddled with the spirit of life. I mean, it was teeming from all over the place. Um, the reason that the Batani became, or Batan came, all of the all of the plant life on Draenor became as powerful as it did was because of that force. It was all over the place. Azeroth, that didn't happen. And it was because that Titan world soul consumed a lot of that spirit of life. A lot of it. It's all residing in that world soul right now. And that's part of the reason why elements on Azeroth are kind of, they, they fight with each other. There's nothing out there to balance them out. That's what spirit does. It kind of balances them out. Whereas the elements on Draenor, they were pretty chill, <laughs> willing to talk to whoever. They didn't even have to take corporeal form. They didn't take corporeal form until after Gron died. Um, it The curse of flesh is an interesting thing. And the implication here seems to be that the spirit of life is the thing that facilitates that process. What we don't know about the Forge of Wills and what we don't know, honestly, about the old gods is how that curse was created or what mechanically speaking it did to people the same goes for the forge right did the forge just mechanically clonk things together was it like you know a giant robot factory that just sort of pumped out dwarves iron dwarves and iron whatever or did it somehow pull from whatever spirit was left on azeroth and use that to facilitate that process um and we don't know and I don't really know that the curse of flesh is a curse of flesh because the first time we heard that referred to, it was a mechanical construct that was talking about it. So naturally to that mechanical construct, that would look like a curse. It's, uh, there's, there's this really interesting question if you go out to uh, Borean Tundra. You guys remember the one, right? With the mechanomes? Mm-hmm. Yep, Mechazod. Okay, you go out and you go talk to Mechazod, and Mechazod is really horrified because all of these gnomes out here, they don't look like they're supposed to look. They've been turned into flesh, so he's trying to, like, fix that, and he views it as this affliction. And I'm wondering if, like, the the entities on Azeroth just kind of assumed that that curse was an an unnatural thing, it was something that wasn't supposed to occur, that it was a curse because... That's how we first heard it referred to. Maybe it's not a curse at all. Maybe this is something that's supposed to happen. And maybe the old gods were kicking it into overdrive because they needed to for some unforeseen reason. I don't know. Um, Rossi, I'm going to let you go, though, because I'm sure you have a lot to say here. Well, first off, you just made one of my points for me, so I'm going to emphasize it. The first time we hear about the curse of flesh is the Tribunal of Ages. It's the one that tells us what it is. And it's a liar. Yes, the Tribunal of Ages was created by Loken to cover his butt because he had done so much that he knew he knew if Algalon came back, he would be punished. Not only he had, had done, he done bad stuff, but he'd done bad stuff at the behest of the old gods, so keep that in yes. mind. He'd done that bad stuff at the behest of Yogg-Saron. It was Yogg-Saron who supposedly created the curse in the first place and put it on the Forge of Wills. To, the infection would spread to other Titan Forge throughout the world. Even if the Titan Forge made from the, from the uh, Forge of Wills met Titan Forge made from the engine of Nalak Shah in the south, they would catch the curse from them. Uh, it would spread. So that's thing one. Thing two is a place called Uldamon. Uh You guys know Uldamon. You remember it. If you played in vanilla, Uldamon was a dwarf. Such a fascinating yeah. place. A little dungeon, you know, on the on the cusp of dwarven territory. It's it's in the Badlands, right? I want to say that. Yep, it's in the Badlands. Yeah. It's you, when you went to Uldaman after you, you fought your way through all the trogs, and then then you suddenly hit a bunch of earthen that were down there and big stone constructs, and you finally got down, and a giant titan keeper, except that we didn't know that that's what it was, animates and starts punching you in the face. You beat him, his name's Archidaeus, and you beat him, and you find the Dis of Norganon. The Dis of Norganon are the thing that Loken didn't have anymore. The thing that was stolen from him by Archidaeus, Ironia, and Tyr. 
who were friends. Are they the correct version of history? Like, are they the correct version of the Forge of, well, the thing... The tribunal you, was supposed to be? Yeah. The, 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 according to Chronicle, they are. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. they're the straight up... According to Chronicle, Loken was using them to basically look for a loophole. He was, like, searching through them, trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now? And when when Tyr came up with the idea of stealing the discs, because Tyr was like, look, we need the discs so we can know how to deal with this. Because the discs are continuously writing history of Azeroth. They're self-writing. When you do something in Azeroth, it ends up in the discs. It just happens. The discs do that. That's their, for lack of a better word, that's their power. The discs are a self-organizing history of, of Azeroth. So... When you get to Oldemon, when you get through everything and you find those discs and you talk to the keep the lore keeper of Norganon that appears, and, and the discs the lore keeper is essentially the discs, for lack of a better word, AI. It's the discs going, Oh, okay, hey, here you are. What? What do you want? Oh, you want to know about about stuff. Okay, yeah, I I happen to know about stuff. That's because that's what I do. Um first up, yeah, oh, what what's the deal with these guys? Oh yeah, they started destabilizing. Yeah, that's it's really weird. Um, but that's, that's fine. Eventually all Titan creations, I mean, usually the Titans just make flesh things in the first place. Yeah. But here they felt like they needed stone things to, to shape and channel the world because it was so hostile. Uh-huh. Yeah. So don't worry. That's not a big deal. That, um, I am of course paraphrasing this because it, it was a much more, you know, it's world of Warcraft. It's not, you know, Jimmy talks to you about the old past time, but <laughs> nevertheless, uh, the, the 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 discs basically say to you, no. Um, Azeroth was made, the 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 Titanforged were made to shape Azeroth because Azeroth required more. But flesh is absolutely the end game. So ever since that, I remembered Aldemon really well because at the end of Aldemon, you get the disc and it tells you to go to Aldem. Yeah, and that you, was the best tra- quest. You you have to basically sneak through Tenaris, get because when you get this quest. At the end of Oldemon, you were like level forty. No, you weren't made... even level forty yet. Okay, well, you were on low enough Tenaris level. Because that... was like forty-five. Yeah, you couldn't even get through Tenaris very easily. Because remember, there were no flying mounts back then. You had to basically hopscotch your way through Tenaris while literally every hostile mob was come running to you like you were made of bacon. And <laughs> you, you you push your way through this desert. You finally get to the gates of Oldemon. It's surrounded by level 48 elite giants. I want to say they were 48 to 52 elites, yeah. something like that. They, they were, they they were, were big. huge big elite giants you you try to figure your way through but they come out and smash you and you eventually you manage to sneak your way around to this one pillar and you've got like a minute tops before they come back like they will walk back over and they will be like oh hey it's it's the bacon guy boom so you have a minute to like talk to this plinth and it's like oh hey yeah you want to go to Aldem? oh yeah that can't happen effectively that's not in the game yet sorry but you do all this and it was this huge hint of like the the backstory of World of Warcraft. It was this big, all this stuff is beneath that's going to happen. That someday you'll get to see what this is. And it was this huge promise of the future that it stuck with me. I've never forgotten it. The second we got up to to Wrath and we went up to Alduar and we like you know talked to to basically because keep in mind the halls of stone and the halls of lightning are parts of Alduar. They're Alduar halls of stone, Alduar halls of lightning. When I first went to the Halls of Stone and I talked to the Tribunal of Ages, I, the first thing that went in my head, the first thing he said about the Curse of Flesh was, but the discs of Nerganon said that that was perfectly natural. And so when Chronicle came out and it said that everything in the Tribunal was BS, I was like, they probably just said this to reconcile themselves, but I knew it. Because the discs of, of Nerganon have always said, this is supposed to happen. This is obsolescence. The Titanforged aren't supposed to stay Titanforged. They're supposed to be, this has always been my belief, Titanforged are supposed to become flesh and be acclimated into Azeroth because the whole point is to, is to shape and heal Azeroth. I'm kind of curious if, because I mean, okay, let's look at Odin here for a second. Odin was angry about the aspects being created he didn't he didn't want them as protectors. He didn't think that they should be protectors and he thought that the Titan Forge were much more suitable for that purpose. Do you think that maybe on some level it was because he was aware that eventually he would fade into obscurity? Is that I what the Titans like the keepers were supposed to do? It wouldn't surprise me because the keepers the whole time have been becoming more and more and more 
removed. Even before the whole, oh, the Titans are dead, let's all go a little crazy bit that broke Loken. And that's why Loken, keep in mind, that's why Loken snapped. Loken wasn't going around talking to Yogg-Saron before that happened. It was when he got yeah. slammed by the, you know, the bit of Mimiron that, not Mimiron, sorry, um, Norganon. Was it Norganon? I don't remember which one it was who got into Loken. But when he got hit by that piece of the Titan, that's what drove him crazy. Because he was like, no, no, the Titans don't respond to us anymore. What, what was that? What just happened? What do I feel? What's going on? I, I can't ask them. And he wasn't, Loken was clever. Like, Loken and Mimiron were those smart ones. They were the clever ones. Tyr was more of a wisdom guy, but Loken was smarts. And so he was basically stuck, unable to, to, to process what he'd experienced. That's what drove him crazy. That's what led him to Yogg-Saron. That's how the, the whole ball of wax went down. But if they had been programmed for obsolescence and not necessarily told that, because, you know, it's kind of, it's a lot to put into a guy. By the way, eventually you'll make yourself obsolete. Then I could see that dr- driving Odin a little crazy. Because look at the dumb stuff Odin then does. He did all kinds of stuff that yeah, honestly of- it wasn't logical. What he did to Helia was not logical. Establishing the whole Halls of Valor thing and the afterlife and everything else, that was not logical. And he seemed to be convinced that this was what the Titans wanted, but it wasn't, at least not according to the Discs of Norganon. According to the Discs of Norganon, everything should have faded away. And Tyr, it seems like Tyr understood that better than most and that was part of the reason why he established the aspects to begin with because they were creatures of Azeroth like they were natural creatures of Azeroth so that obviously they would serve really well as protectors yeah it's really fascinating too because of all of them Tyr um Arcadeus and Ironia understand that okay we're done like they go they they run they, they try to get away to to make a to stand but this, when they stand against Loken is can't be can't be fulfilled. They understand. Okay, we're done. We can't. It it really move gives on. the Oldamon dungeon like this new purpose that wasn't there. I mean, we knew it was kind of important back in Vanilla. You got that impression when you did the dungeon and you got to the end and you got all that lore, but you didn't really understand how important until well, Legion really. I mean, Wrath revealed some stuff, but it was kind of a confusion. Like almost a di- diversion tactic. Well, it was a diversion tactic. Loken was yeah. trying to divert. Um, Joe, you've been really quiet. Do you have anything to add to all of this? No, not really. I think you guys are covering pretty much everything. This is why I wanted to shut up and let him go first, because I knew... <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts about the Curse of Flesh, Joe? Like, whether or not it is actually a curse, or how it operates, or are the old gods, like, facilitating this process, or... I- I think it's just more that they're speeding it up. I really, I, I think that it is just the natural state of how things are supposed to transition. Okay, so here's well, my because... question for you, Joe, that I want you to answer for me. Okay. Why? Why do you think they're speeding up that process? Because it makes them weaker, right? It makes those vessels easier to damage. It makes them less of a threat. Because, yeah, you can corrupt, you know, only so much, but at the end of the day, if you have an army, an entire army, made out of things of of stone and metal and whatever natural elements we've seen this like they they went to war before they don't need to worry about crafting armor they don't have they don't worry about procreating they don't have these very human worries that we do and if you think about it as races in this world we are yeah we're strong but we're also weak we fall prey to sort of the classic villain um gambles right like it's the well you can go save your girlfriend if you want this bus full of people to die you know you have to and you have to make these choices that conflict us in each of each decision we make it has a chance to corrupt us again or or to sway us either away from the fight or towards doing something that maybe we don't necessarily want to do like how many fights have we gotten into or how many things have we done and we and i've talked about this before we don't generally take a long view approach to our battles. We don't. We 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 are in this position where we feel we don't have that luxury. Yeah, we're fighting the Legion, but what's going to happen when we go and, and let's say leave the planet to go fight the Legion in their home world? What's going to happen back home? What's going to happen in that vacuum? We don't know. What's going to happen if we ever do defeat the Legion? Now we have this other unknown threat that that we possibly have removed another barrier for. And these are very living things. These are very living sort of foibles right these are these are our 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 flaws 
that the constructs don't have. They follow orders. They do what they're told. They, they have their primary directives. They're programmed. They go and do the things that they are programmed to do. But the minute they get free will, the minute we they become us, it's a whole other set of variables. We, we can't be controlled. We might fight against, you know, the Titanic creations. We don't know. We're a wild card at that point. So I think that it's accelerated as a result of that. I think that the intention was always sort of to have these creations become part of the world because, well, if the world's in good shape and the world still needs to evolve, then there's no more need for the defense type thing. And they can just sort of be one with the this world. Well, I think we just kind of went ahead of schedule. <laughs> Okay, um, Rossi, I have kind of the same question for you. Why do you think that they did it? Why do you think that they hastened that process? Um, well, first off, because it's easier for them to control things of flesh, as I think Joe basically implied. Pretty much. Um, they've, they've said repeatedly that, you know, um, it's easier for them. It facilitates consumption. Even the, the, um, the problem is, is that that's something that the, uh, the Tribunal of the Ages said. The, ne- the necrophotic, the light, the light devourers, um, you know, use the curse to basically facilitate consumption. So we have to think about what, when we're told something by the aspect, by the uh, tribunal of the ages, we have to think about why it would tell us that. Is it, is it telling us truth to make itself more plausible? Because sometimes liars tell you the truth to, to make their lives better. You know, if, if I, if I see it in like some truth which here, parts, which parts yeah. of this thing are actually incorrect. And sometimes the, the horror of it is more, the tr- horror of the truth is better than any lie they could tell. Yeah. yeah. So it could possibly be that, or another possibility is because they know how vain the Titans creations are. Cause look at Odin's reaction to, you know, dragons who aren't even calling a dragon, a mortal being is pushing it. Like, you know, dragons are these well, the huge... Well, proto-drakes, the proto-drakes were... They were these primordial, fleshy things that yeah, just but lived they, on Azeroth. We know that dragons descend from drakes that came from, like, the elemental planes. And when they came to Azeroth, began turning into flesh naturally. We know that. That's, that's backstory. Yep. That's what dragons yeah. are. Dragons are... So, A... Things of stone and elements that turn into flesh. Boom, gotcha. That's dragons. Uh, secondly, calling them mortal is like you know it's technically true, but they live for thousands of years and can breathe you know fire and ice and they're not like this is not something soft and easily destroyed. These they are will massively... though eventually sure. die of old yeah. age. And that's the thing. It's like Odin was so put out because he looked at these things that are not like what he is. But which could do the job. And that means his entire premise is faulty. His whole premise is they can't do it. They, they're not good enough. It has to be beings like us. And I feel and, like his protest was actually, you're making me obsolete before my time. Yeah, exactly. And it feels an awful lot like that's the real goal for the, for the uh, old gods. Because it makes the, tit- the Titan forged as an army defeated the old gods. It, it was a great cost, but they did it. They beat the old gods and they beat them in a way that has made, made them far less powerful. Like there's, there's not, there was a black empire that covered the entirety of Kalimdor and no matter how powerful the old gods are now, they're not that powerful. They have lost, they have been diminished. Look at the Klaxi. The Klaxi talked about how, you know, their gods are not our gods and about how, you know, at the end, you know, the war will come down to, and when the Klaxi actually sit up and confront you, you beat them. The Klaxi can't stand against you. It's it's one of those things. It's a psychological game because they can't actually win. I feel like this is a know your lore that I need to write this week, so I'm probably going to go into it more. <laughs> yeah, it just but feels we are like, running low on time here. So my my argument would ultimately be that the basically by claiming credit for this process by saying we're the ones doing it, they make it something that the Titan Forge become afraid of. Then you get the Mogu who are willing to like do anything to stop it from happening, even turn against everything they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and it's a way to chip. It's basically it's like making cracks in a rock to to break it. Water can erode rock when you could basically pound on a rock with a hammer all day and you can't hurt this rock, but water will eventually destroy it. It's it's a way to erode them. Okay. That would be my argument. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I know what I'm writing Know Your Lore about this week. 
that's I'll, I'll leave it at that I'll leave it at that because yeah that was a fascinating question Zam and thanks for bringing that up because that's actually something that I kind of want to dis- discuss for a while now um, just given what we've learned in Legion because Legion clarified a lot of this and Chronicle clarified a lot of this so it, it's sort of interesting to see that maybe the game that we thought was being played is not actually the game at all it's it's all just you know sleight of hand look over here don't look at what i'm actually doing look over here at this other thing and i feel like that's a lot of what's going on in this particular instant in, in this weird cosmic battle that's going on on azeroth all right that wraps us up for these emails and that also wraps us up for the show if you have any uh emails for or questions for lore watch you can email those to podcast at blizzardwatch.com just be sure to put lore watch in the subject line we do address those occasionally try to keep them fairly brief but you know if it's a topic we find interesting we may dedicate a whole show to just talking about it we did it last week okay and blizzard watch itself it's made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzard watch and your continued support means that this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow blizzard watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue and an ads free site experience um, final thoughts, you guys. Do you think... I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this exactly. Do you... Zalatath, the blade that we were talking about, one of the things that Zalatath says, he calls it the gift of flesh, and he uses quote-unquote with it. He has quotes around that. Do you think that this whole flesh thing, do you think it's a gift, a curse, or something that's just natural and maybe we should accept it? Joe, go ahead and go. I think that it's just the natural transition. I think that it was, it, it is the natural occurrence of what happens when you are in a world that has a world soul or just in spirit in general. Like a, a when it has that spirit to interact with, it's going to happen. You see it on Draenor. You see it on Azeroth, and it's just sort of the way things go. Rossi, what do you think? Same question. Uh, I think this the whole the fact that we see it happen on Draenor to the. You know, the, the Magnaron, they turn into the Gron, and the Gron are much basically half flesh, half stone. And the Gron's descendants keep progressing along that path when they're exposed to the Spirit of Life. It implies that the Spirit of Life inherently makes living things. Like, if, if you have a planet that's just bursting with the Spirit of Light, it'll even turn rock into a living thing if it has enough time. That's just what's going to happen. Um, lifeless rock will take form and become become a living thing if the spirit of life has anything to do with it. So, yeah, I I feel like this is a situation where the old gods are the old gods are parasites. They're exploiters. They don't make anything. They don't even make void. That comes from their masters. The old gods don't make anything. So I don't think they made this curse. I think they warped it because that's what they do is they twist things and they warp them. They don't make. And as for why they do it, well, flesh is easier to work with. Well, that wraps us up. Thank you guys very much for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. 